Hello, it's your old friend Kevin, and welcome back to Elmtown. I have Keith Lazuka and AJ Alt from Microsoft here today. But before we talk about them, of course, I want to remind you of our fabulous sponsors that keep this show going. As always, we have Ellie from Ellie-app.com, the online scratch pad for compiling and running snippets of Elm code and sharing them with other people. Uh, if you're not already using Ellie to trade snippets of Elm with other folks in the community, you should definitely give that a try. Then there's Culture Amp, my employer who sponsor my time hosting this show. I'm really grateful that I get to go to work every day at a place where I get to do an Elm podcast as part of my job. I would normally point you to Cultramp's job sites, but actually just last week, Oslo Elm Day posted all of their videos on YouTube and they're all sponsored by Cultramp. So I'll just say, go and watch the Oslo Elm Day videos. You'll do me a big favor if you do. Finally, Joel Claremont our community member and recording sponsor. He's Jay Claremont, C-L-E-R-M-O-N-T on Twitter. He runs the Milwaukee FP group and the Milwaukee PHP meetup group. You should reach out to him if you are anywhere near that part of the world and get involved in that community. And last but not least, I want to thank Xavier Ho, who makes us all sound great by editing out the boring parts of this show. <laughs> Thanks again, Xavier. You, uh, you keep me sane and keep me sounding good. And you make our guests sound good. So hello, guests. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Keith you, and AJ, you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, hi, I'm Keith Lazuka, and I work on the IntelliJ Elm language plugin. And I also did the hot module reloading port uh, for 0 0.19. Um, and I currently work at Microsoft. And AJ, you're at Microsoft too, is that right? That's right. I haven't been here as long as Keith. And meeting him, starting to work with him, he introduced me to Elm, and now I collaborate with him on the Elm plugin. Great. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about because uh, we are somewhat competitors in a strange way. I'm the maintainer of the Sublime Text Elm language support package. But I will freely say that having looked at the features of the, uh, the IntelliJ plugin that you two maintain, it is miles ahead of anything else out there. And some time ago, I switched away from Sublime Text, even though I continue to maintain that package. But I'm using Visual Studio Code right now, and I think I might have to switch to IntelliJ, having looked at your package. Tell me about how did this project get started, and how did you, you get involved in it? AJ and I both work on a team at Microsoft called PowerLift, and it's an internal project. And the server is written in Kotlin, and Kotlin is a programming language that runs on the JVM, and it was developed by JetBrains. JetBrains is the creator of the IntelliJ IDE platform. So when we were working on this server, you know, I started using IntelliJ, and prior to that, I had been an iOS developer for eight years, so living in Xcode um, all that time. Switching to IntelliJ was like a... A revelation to me because Xcode, you know, basically is like a glorified text editor by comparison. Yeah, it's got a couple of shortcuts for switching between files and it's got the beginnings of an IDE. It's always trailed a little behind the state of the art, I guess. Yep. So when I switched to IntelliJ, I was like, wow, this is pretty amazing. And I was using it to write Kotlin code and I love the refactorings and whatnot. And as part of this project at Microsoft, there was also a web part to it. 
And that was originally written in uh, JavaScript with React and Redux and all that stuff. And I wanted us to switch to Elm. But since everybody was IntelliJ developers, I knew, like, okay, well, we have to have a great uh, way to write Elm code in IntelliJ because those are the tools that uh, the rest of the team was familiar with. Mm. So somebody already had an IntelliJ Elm plugin. Yeah, I saw that. When I went searching for yours, I found theirs first, and it said, go look at this one instead. So Camille Dirkowitz had done the original implementation, and so I became a contributor. And then, for whatever the case, he stopped maintaining the Elm plugin. And so then I ended up rewriting it pretty much from scratch. Probably that was about a little over a year ago. Hmm. And AJ, where do you come into this story? Yeah, so I, uh, most of my career, I spent as a hardcore Vim enthusiast. You know, I was working in environments that didn't have internet connections and we were restricted on the types of software we could use. So you didn't have much choice. I got good at Vim. I thought, why would anyone need an IDE when you have the world's <laughs> best text editor? We have a few folks like that at Cultram. And, you know, when you're in that world, everything feels fine. But eventually I moved over to the West Coast to Silicon Valley and started doing some Android development. And really your only choice there is Android Studio, which is also a version of IntelliJ. And once you just realize the ability to do refactorings and move stuff and analyze your code, I was hooked. I can't go back. So I still use, you know, Sublime or Vim if I just need to do some quick text editing, but I'm hooked on IntelliJ now. Um, I'd never used Elm before I started working with Keith. He introduced me to it. At the time, it, it was pretty early on when he had just started working on the plugin. And it was already had a lot of features, but there was a lot of stuff missing that you get from the full IntelliJ experience when you're writing with Java or Kotlin or something that's had all these hundreds of hours of development put into these language plugins. So I saw some stuff that I that was missing and decided to start working with him. And we've been doing that ever since. Mm. I last used IntelliJ um, in a significant way probably a decade ago when I was writing uh, Java code as a big part of my job. And I loved that IDE back then. It was before IntelliJ became this kind of multi-language thing. It was very, very much at the time specialized for Java development. And I switched away from it when I switched away from Java, but have always kind of, you know, looked back wistfully at how good an IDE that was. And over the years, having heard IntelliJ and its variants uh, mentioned in the Ruby community with RubyMine, uh, more recently in the JavaScript community with WebStorm, all these variants of IntelliJ. It's been very tempting to me to get, go back to it, but uh, I hadn't done it until I finally installed your package and had to play with it yesterday. For someone who's been away from IntelliJ for 10 years, or for someone who might be listening to this who's never used IntelliJ, what would you say about it? Well, I'd say that it's a free, IDE platform and it's open source. And it's not just for Java, um, even though it started that way. So I think now it's at least maybe 10 different, there's like 10 different specialized flavors of it. Yeah. Like Android Studio, like you said, RubyMine for Ruby and WebStorm for doing JavaScript and TypeScript. And a lot of those cost money, but my understanding is the free version, if you were just going to use it to write Elm code, it, you get everything you need for free. Is that right? Yeah, IntelliJ Community Edition is entirely free and open source, and if you could download the Elm plugin for that, and that's also free, so 
that would give you everything you need. And it's multi-platform, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux. So what can you share about Powerlift as a project? Like, what does that Elm code base look like, if you can talk about it at all? Most of the web app is only used internally by Microsoft employees, but there is like another part to it, which is it's part of a customer support system. Part of that is providing solutions to users of apps like Outlook for iPhone and Android, um, mm. providing solutions when they encounter bugs or you know they need help. And so those solutions are mini Elm apps. Oh, wow. So basically, we're easily tens of millions of Outlook users interact with Elm apps in a year, for sure. So uh, so a customer who's using Outlook on their iPhone, they have an issue, they contact support. It's a commonly asked question. And, then, and so rather than reply with an email template, you reply with a link to this mini Elm app that teaches them how to solve their problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not all problems, but the problems that we do know about, we can provide a like a little interactive workflow that can walk them through a workaround or acknowledge a problem. That's super cool. All right, so let's get back to this, this editor package. You knew you wanted to convince your colleagues to use Elm, and you would have to do it in IntelliJ. You spent some time contributing to this existing one, and then you were going to build a new one from scratch. My question is, how did you go about that? What was that development process like? I don't even know what language you would write IntelliJ packages in. IntelliJ is built on the JVM. You know, the, generally you'd use JVM-based languages like Java or Kotlin or, you know, even Clojure. Um, but generally Java or Kotlin. Uh, how did it start? Well, the original implementation was written in Java 8. Mm -hmm. which if anyone's familiar with Java 8, you know, they introduced a lot of functional programming concepts, you know, like having higher order functions like map and filter and whatnot um, using the streams API. And they also introduced uh, the concept of like nullability by having like this optional type, optional class. And those were well-intentioned, but they leave a lot to be desired, like in terms of, you know, like kind of the syntax and how they're implemented. And so Kotlin, on the other hand, does those things exceptionally well. Since, you know, working with like collections and doing things like mapping over collections and filtering them and whatnot is something that I find is quite useful. I decided it was best just to start over and um, write it in Kotlin. Yeah, wow. It's reminiscent to me of the relationship between JavaScript and Elm in a funny way, that JavaScript's getting all of these FP features, but they're bolted on to the old thing that you can't break compatibility with, so you can only add to the ball of mud, as it were. And uh, uh, something like Elm, which is like a, a clean break or a, a purpose design language, would you say like Kotlin is the Elm to yeah, I'd say it's a very fair comparison, especially since they like kind of run on the comparable virtual machine. So there is compatibility, but there is, you know, language design choices um, that were made that made like a, you know, let's say 10x improvement. Was this the first Kotlin that you wrote? I started doing the server work for this project within Microsoft, but AJ is Mr. Kotlin. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When I moved out here and started working on Android, 
the only choice you really had at the time was to work in Java. And, you know, Java's got some good things about it, but it is also just really painful. You know, you have to sign everything in triplicate. You have to, it's very difficult to do anything functionally. Um, null pointer exceptions are just the way of life. So when Kotlin was first getting started back when it was in beta, I was really interested in it and I'd been following it. And the day that it was released in stable, I converted some of our Android apps from Java to Kotlin. And I've just been an advocate ever since. I think it's wow. just such a clear improvement over Java in essentially every way. And the compatibility means that you're not um, forced to convert anything 100%. You can go piecemeal. Um, and just work with the code you have. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a couple of Java systems here at uh, Cultramp, and uh, just as you say, um, the engineers who work on them have been finding every excuse to write new parts and rewrite old parts in Kotlin whenever they can. It's great because not only do you have the code reduction, you know, you can just write code more concisely and more directly in the way that you're thinking. I found that we got about a 40 to 60% reduction in just number of lines of code, which is yeah, cool. Right. Yeah. But you also have the safety, um, you know, the, the null ability issues that exist in Java are just mm. pretty much non-existent in Kotlin. So it kind of feels like the difference between JavaScript and Elm. There's so many ways that you can just accidentally shoot yourself in the foot in JavaScript that just are not a possibility in Elm. Right, so let's dig into this package. When I was uh, when I was reading the docs for it, the first thing that made me raise my eyebrows was the mention of the fact that you are parsing the Elm code is converted to an AST, and then the package acts on that AST. And uh, I thought, well, that would certainly give you a lot of power. But did you have to write that AST parsing yourself? And if so, how did that go? Yeah, so this is you know one of the most important things about the IntelliJ architecture. Basically, every custom language plugin, the way that you achieve that is by effectively implementing the front end of your language's compiler within the plugin, meaning lexer, parser, like name resolution, type system, everything except code generation, more or less, um, you end up implementing in the plugin. And, uh, you know, obviously there's uh, kind of a high burden, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. Just taking a step back, the Sublime Text Editor plugin and other code editors like Visual Studio Code and Atom, they all support languages on the basis of basically like regular expressions. You use that to tell the editor, well, this is an operator and should be syntax colored as such, and this is a variable and this is uh, a function. So it's all kind of like searching for patterns of text within a plain text block. And you can only do so much with that. As I understand it, the IntelliJ introduces a level of complexity, which is a burden for you as a package author, but it unlocks a lot of power by forcing you not just to identify what individual characters are, but to build a abstract syntax tree, this tree representation of the full structure of the code, what is inside of what, and which identifiers appear in more than one place, that sort of stuff. Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. And modeling things like lexical scope, like what names are visible in this scope and how the imports work and things like that. So yeah, you build this very rich representation of the source code, and then you build all of your functionality on top of that. By being able to express 
how the source code is structured, you know, you can build some pretty amazing functionality. Does IntelliJ give you those features for free once you can describe the language, or did you have to build those features as well? About half and half. Obviously, it doesn't know anything about how name resolution is done and doesn't know anything about Elm's imports or you know how the function parameters work. You have to define that, but a lot of the mechanism behind it is provided by the platform. Great. The next thing that caught my eye was just these the feature videos that you have on the site. So just one by one, let me go through these really quickly, and then maybe we'll come back and talk about your favorites or the ones that might have an interesting story behind them. So the package lets you do all of these things. When you use a new function from another module, it can automatically add the imports to the top of the file. It can clean up unused imports, so things you imported in the past, or functions that you exposed from things you imported in the past that you're no longer using, it can clean those up for you. It can rename functions and variables, not just within a module, but across the modules in your project. It will flag unused functions and unused arguments in your functions. It can infer the type of not just a single variable name, but you can gradually expand the selection and infer the type of that expression. It will do live type checking. So if you pass the wrong kind of thing to a function, it lets you know right away instead of making you wait till the next time you try to build and get compiler output. It can show you quick documentation in line in a pop-up, not just for the packages you've imported that have pre-built documentation online, but also for your own packages that you have written documentation comments for. It gives a structure view that is not just available in a side panel, but is also available as a pop-up quick fuzzy navigation tool. It lets you see which functions in your... <laughs> I'm laughing because it just goes on and on. It lets you see the functions in your module that are exposed and toggle that exposure on and off with just a click. And it can generate the declaration of a function based on the type annotation after you type it. Is that everything or is there more that, that just didn't make the list? There's definitely more. I mean... It, it, <laughs> One thing that we just added recently is the ability to do language injections. So you can type GLSL code directly inside of Elm. Now, if you have the GLSL plugin for IntelliJ, which is written by someone else, but if you have that installed, uh, we automatically can inject that into the code that you're writing inside of Elm. So all of your GLSL code in your Elm file will be syntax highlighted. You can do refactoring inside of that. Um, we also do the same thing with regular expressions. I just added that. So yeah, there's tons more that isn't in that list. Super cool. Wow. So of that feature list, are there any stories behind those? Were any of those particularly hard to get working? I think the type inference is probably the biggest project. It's pretty much what I've spent most of my time on. That's the one that looked the most magical to me, that when I saw the video, I didn't quite believe that it worked. There isn't really a lot of magic. It's just re-implementing the entire Elm type system in our plane. Oh, oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah. It's not easy, but it is simple. Type inference has always been something that's really interesting to me. Compiler theory and type theory in general, I think, are really fun. So that was kind of the project that attracted me to start working on this. Because you don't get a lot of chances in your career, at least I haven't in mind, to work on compilers. But... If I see one of those chances, I jump on it. And writing this plugin is sort of compiler theory adjacent. You know, you're not necessarily writing a compiler, but you're writing the parser and the type inference. And so doing that has been really fun. 
What is your inspiration for these features? Like, where is the wish list coming from? Are these just things that, as Elm developers, you go, it would be really nice if? Or is it like the A-grade Kotlin support in IntelliJ that you want to get as close to as possible and you're bringing as many of those features over as you can? It's primarily, at least for me, you know, as I'm writing Elm code, I keep a kind of little list off to the side of pain points and whatnot. I've been chipping away at that list. And then also I'm pretty active on the Elm Slack and I reach out to people and talk to people who are, are using it and solicit feature requests or find out what bugs are out there and get them fixed. Mm. I'm a neat freak when it comes to my code. And so the thing that bugs me the most now that we're on Elm 19 is that the compiler warnings went away. And it felt like when the compiler bothered my colleagues about uh, unused imports and things like that, and in, in a very friendly way, it said, don't leave code tidiness till later, delete the things you're not using, they would do it. But since Elm 19, I'm the only one who worries about deleting the things that I'm not using anymore. And I have a difficult time making the case to my colleagues that it's worth their time to tidy that stuff up because obviously the the l19 compiler is so good at it won't compile in anything you don't use so there is no downside in the output to leaving those things dangling around but as a neat freak i really appreciate that the intellij package not only alerts you to the things you're not using but provides a really easy way to all at once uh, do an instant tidy up of any module yeah yeah you can um, do it across the entire project it'll remove the dead imports um, from all files. I actually have kind of a funny story about the unused code inspection. Oh yeah. So I implemented that feature like over the winter break when I was traveling back home with my family. And um, it's kind of amazing that the IntelliJ platform is kind of so well designed that that kind of feature could be implemented like basically in the airport or on the plane. <laughs> yep. So it was fairly quick to implement once we had built all this infrastructure. And when I went and applied it, the ran the unused code inspection on this PowerLift project that we have at Microsoft on the Elm code base, I found, you know, of course, a bunch of unused code. And then I, as I was looking at some of them, I found some, you know, one case where there was an unused function parameter. And turned out that that was actually a bug, that the body of the function should have been in JSON encoder that wasn't, was ignoring a parameter. Oh, so it wasn't wow. writing it out. So anyway, in addition to kind of like satisfying your inner neat freak, you know, can also find bugs, which is good. Yeah, things you thought were being used that aren't actually being used, definitely. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the transition from Elm 18 to Elm 19, because I know as a package maintainer myself, that was, uh, that was a big change. The Sublime Text package, for example, at the moment is in this split reality where the current release version only supports Elm 18 and the current beta version only supports Elm 19. And I kind of don't want to release the beta as the primary one in case some people are still using Elm 18. I notice your package supports both alongside each other. Was that a tough thing to do? Yeah, handling Elm 19 was very difficult, but I got involved very early on when it was still in alpha. And initially I was ready to pull the plug on Elm 18 right away. And I had started to write the code that way. And um, AJ kind of gently nudged me and said, you know, it's, it's not a good idea. You know, you should, let's maintain compatibility. And I'm so glad that I did because 
you know, Elm 19 transition was difficult as a plugin author, but also as somebody who has like a fairly large Elm application, migrating to 19 was a bit of work. It wasn't as easy as 17 to 18. Yeah. And so I'm really glad that we've maintained compatibility with both. It also makes things a lot simpler if there's only one thing to install. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's what I'm going to have to do is that now that I figured out how to support Elm 19, I need to go back and put both things in the package. And, and I'm glad that wasn't just me. <laughs> I, I definitely went along that same path of going, ah, break from the past. That's what 0.x versions are all about, right? Yeah. And well, and after waiting, you know, for a while for 19, it kind of felt like, well, everybody will update right away, you know. I want to do some usage check to see, how, you know, what percentage of users are still using 18 versus 19. Because mm -hmm. at some point, carrying around that extra baggage won't make sense. The thing at CultureAmp that we had to do is that moving everything to Elm 19 by landing a single PR just was not going to be practical for us. And uh, release of 19 ultimately was the catalyst for us to break apart our single Elm code base into a number of separate Elm code bases that we could port to 19 at different times. So we're in a place right now where about half of our Elm code base is on 19 and half of it is on 18. And both of those are in the same webpack build and uh, so having an editor that can switch back and forth between the two uh, even within the same project is uh, almost a must for us it definitely adds a lot of complications when you're doing things like parsing the code because some constructs are valid in 19 that aren't in 18 or vice versa yeah it also adds complications when you're doing type inference because you can for example in elm 18 assign patterns at the top level inside of a file, but in Elm 19, those have to be nested inside of a let expression inside of another function. And when you're trying to do inference on something that's only valid in one language, you have to, it, that becomes difficult to handle. Or also when you're trying to handle just partial programs that aren't entirely written. The Elm compiler has the advantage of just bailing out when that happens, if you haven't finished typing yet, but we have to continue to parse as much as we can and still give you good output. I had assumed that any features that were removed in Elm 19, your kind of implementation of the Elm language parser and type system would continue to support those features. But are you saying that you switch between two versions of your internal representation of the language so that, you know, if you're working in a 19 project, your Elm parser knows when you're using a non-supported feature? We do know that, but we generally treat the code as sort of a superset of 18 and 19. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Generally, we won't warn you if you have a mixture of features that's available in both. Yeah, that's the shortcut that we took. But we do have that ability for any you know given source file to know whether it should be Elm 18 and Elm 19. And in certain cases, we will have like kind of a special path to, uh, to handle that. You were talking about um, parse errors. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to talk about. I've been trying to consult with, you know, people about Elm tools, um, whether it's Elm format or you know these attempts to do like an Elm language server. The thing that I think is most important is developing a parser that can gracefully recover from syntax errors. Because in the editor context, your program is almost always going to be, you know, incomplete. You know, you haven't closed something out or there's just basically going to be syntax errors. 
Yeah, and you can't bail out of syntax highlighting a file just because there's a missing bracket on the second line. Right, or providing code completion or yeah. anything like that. So the Elm compiler itself has different requirements. You know, it tries to continue and show you good errors, but at some point it just bails out and says like, you know, whatever, I'm just not going to parse any more files or, yeah. or whatever. These are the two errors that are keeping me from understanding everything else you're saying. And once you fix them, I may have more notes. <laughs> so any Elm tools that try to build on top of the Elm compiler, you're just going to be subjected to this restriction that you may or may not be getting all of the, let's say, errors. And so instead, it's really important to build a parser that can parse incomplete programs and mark where the errors are and stuff, stuff like that. So luckily, you know, that's kind of an important thing for IntelliJ. And I think that's one of the reasons why the developer experience in IntelliJ is so good because in these kind of dirty real world programs that are like, you know, half written, you still get all the good functionality. I think a really good example highlighting that is when you have, you know, a message union type and you add a new variant to it. When you do that and you compile it with Elm, it might tell you one or two places where you missed that variant. But when you're typing in IntelliJ, we can tell you every single case branch that you've made a mistake on. And until you've tried it, you don't realize just how much time you waste going back and forth between fixing one thing, waiting for the Elm compiler to recompile everything and tell you the next place to fix versus just being able to see them all immediately as soon as you type. Yeah, it's optimized for a different purpose as well. I mean, the, you want the compiler's parser to run as fast as possible uh, because it's sitting in your continuous integration tooling. It's uh, super performance critical. Whereas I imagine something that's living in your editor, the priority is high quality feedback, even on broken code. I guess it does make sense that we want these different implementations of a language parser for different purposes. Yeah, there's they have kind of different goals. And I know, I, at least I remember offhand, at least um, Evan saying that, you know, the goal of the compiler is just to get the job done of compiling the code as fast as possible. You know, don't hold your breath for uh, editor support. Yeah. Anyway, it, it is unfortunate that we have to duplicate a lot of work, you know, basically re-implementing kind of the front end of the Elm compiler. But in my view, it's kind of inevitable because the goals are different. While we do need an alternative implementation for our editors, it would be nice if all the different editors could share the same one. Do you feel like the Elm parser that you've built for IntelliJ could be made into a generic thing that other editors could take advantage of? Um, not as such, because it kind of uses some stuff that's like the parser runtime is kind of part of IntelliJ. And, but I have been working with some of the people working on language server related stuff, and they've uh, been using the parser grammar that we've developed as a starting point or to help guide their implementation. I think the language server idea is great. And probably, you know, in the future, this is will be how languages are developed that instead of just having like kind of a monolithic compiler that just takes source code in and generates, you know, bytecode or machine code or what have you. For the world that we're living in, where some languages are designed to be used like as a library, like in the case of LLVM-based languages, 
And then there's others where the language just has like a regular monolithic compiler that's not really, cannot really be used as a library. Then the IntelliJ approach of build it yourself is very pragmatic, but it is a bit of a shame that so much work goes into something and to have it be restricted to, you know, a certain editor, let's say. Oh, well, at least it's a great editor. Very true. I think that there's actually the idea of a language server sounds really good in theory. You have one implementation of everything you need and any editor can plug into it. But I think the reality of what happens with these language servers is that they kind of cater to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. The features that you can get by writing a custom plugin for IntelliJ are never going to be fully replicated by a language server protocol mm. because languages are so different and they have to try to support all of them with the same protocol, it never ends up happening. So I think that language servers are nice to get a really basic subset of functionality, but for the really powerful stuff, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have to go with a more in-depth implementation. The combination of features you have in your package right now, just in my short time of playing with it, I feel like it provides a really amazing transformation to the experience of writing Elm code. Evan and other people in the Elm community talk about things like large files are not a problem. You just keep them organized and you know you can split things out into other modules when that makes sense. But you know, start with a big file and if your big file is working, go with a big file. And the one downside to that for me has been, well, big files mean you're constantly scrolling up to the top of them to modify your imports and then scrolling back and oh no, you've lost your place. And I just feel like the features that make me most excited about your package are the ones that save me scrolling, that uh, I can toggle whether a function is exposed or not in place. I can add and optimize imports in place. And so that vertical travel really goes away. Yes, you were asking how we chose the features that we uh, implemented. And I said that I keep like this little wish list as I'm writing Elm code and they almost always amount to reducing that scrolling up to the top. You know, it's like that just breaks your flow. Even something as simple as that you collapse the list of imports at the top of the file and that, that just in itself saves a bit of scrolling. You were talking about like the life of a file and how they get larger and then everybody says, you know, one of the best things about Elm is that it's really easy to refactor because the compiler basically catches all of the breakage. And that's totally true. However, fixing all the breakage takes time. Our goal with the IntelliJ plugin is that doing refactoring and fixing breakage should be like, you know, really effortless. It's not just that, you know, no bugs are introduced, it's that it doesn't, it's fast. For instance, you can rename, like if you want to rename an Elm module, um, an Elm file, like on disk, you know, you also need to fix up all the imports yeah. You need to fix up the module declaration. You need to fix up qualified uh, references. And yeah, the Elm compiler will tell you where all those spots are, and you have to go fix them one by one. But like with IntelliJ's rename refactoring, you can just do, you know, type shift F6, which triggers like quick rename, type the new name, and then hit return, and, you know, it goes and updates all of the files. 
Right. So your wish list for the future on this package, does it look like mostly more refactoring features? I like I remember from my Java days with IntelliJ, there were there was a kind of a canonical set of refactors and there were things like extract function into a new package and things like that. Are, are you hoping to bring all those sort of refactors in? Yeah. One of the big ones is ex like extract variable or extract function. So you can think of like taking a sub expression and creating a let binding for it. Yep. And likewise, sometimes you have a let binding and you're like, oh, this, you know, it's not worth it. Let's yeah. just inline that. You know, it'd be nice to be able to inline that um, directly into the call site. So those are very high on my list. And, um, and the other one is the one rename that we do not support is rename of fields in a record. Is that harder to do or is it just not made it to the top of the list yet? I held off on it because we wanted to have the type system implemented because to know uh, what fields are available in a record, we want to be able to kind of definitively uh, link those things up. We don't want to do it in like a kind of a fuzzy way. Yeah, it would seem to me that things like extensible records and the fact that you can use these dot functions as uh, generic accessors for records that have a certain field name in them, and they're not specifically tied to a particular record type, that those kind of things would complicate refactors like that. Would I be guessing right? Yes, you're correct. Those are the things, those are the reasons why I've kind of held off on attempting it. Uh, so far. Extensible records specifically have kind of been the bane of my life working <laughs> with the type inference engine. Extensible records are basically the wild west when it comes to Elm. If you've ever wanted to try to get a runtime error in Elm to crash your yeah. Elm program, just start using extensible records in weird ways. They're not typed very well, they're inconsistently used, sometimes things are errors and sometimes they aren't. It feels like Evan kind of just hasn't put as much thought into those since that feature's changed a lot in the past two versions of Elm. If you're implementing your own parser for Elm, does that mean you've had to write a big test suite of test cases that kind of describe the Elm language? Yeah, I think we got like, I don't know, 800, 900 tests, maybe. Yeah, we follow a pretty, you know, test-driven technique, and most features are implemented um, by writing tests, and then um, feel pretty good about the coverage. Mm. Because even if there isn't a shared uh, parser between all of the editor packages, I feel like simply having a language spec in the form of a large number of test cases could be really useful as a, as a community resource. Probably not the test so much as we have this BNF grammar that describes Elm syntax. And that's kind of what I've been sharing with the, uh, some people that are working on language server stuff. Yeah, cool. So the one thing I haven't heard quite entirely here is how the two of you split work. It sounds like Keith, you were working on this project earlier and AJ came in. What's the collaboration like? Uh, I think one time I went on vacation and I came back and there was a pull request from AJ. He had never even, he had just kind of casually shown some interest in the Elm plugin and he went and implemented the quick documentation feature. Oh, wow. He had went and figured it all out kind of on his own without any kind of onboarding process and uh, committed a big feature right away. And since then, how we've been dividing up work is that, you know, he works uh, primarily on the type system. I work primarily on the name resolution system. And then the remaining tasks we just kind of take as needed. 
Well, that sounds lovely. As a solo package maintainer for the Sublime one, I would really like to have a collaborator in my life like that. Yeah, there's so much work to be done. You know, the to-do list is always growing. Mm. And it's, it's been great having AJ taking some really hard uh, features on his shoulders and seeing them through to completion. Is that how you see it, AJ, or do you do all the hard features? <laughs> well, I think all the features are hard. Yeah, type inference is definitely a ton of work. I think that type theory is cool, and it comes across to a lot of people as much more difficult than it needs to be, mostly because the way it's described in academia is very complicated. Type theory annotation, notation and papers um, just do their best to make it as inscrutable as possible, when really the core concepts are not that difficult. Most of the work is just due to the fact that we have to work with partial programs and with um, directly on this AST, whereas the Elm compiler gets to do a lot of transformations on stuff before it has to work and do the type inference at all. So there's a lot of work to do, and it is hard, but I think that Keith is doing a ton of great work as well. Well, on behalf of everyone who will be using uh, IntelliJ for their uh, Elm editor for the foreseeable future. I just want to thank you for all your hard work, you two. And uh, I think I, I will take up no more of your time that could be better spent bringing even more awesome refactoring features to uh, this Elm programming environment. So thank you both for joining us on Elm Town today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And uh, we will call that the end of another episode of Elmtown. So thank you, listener, for joining us. And we will look forward to seeing you back in Elmtown soon. Bye for now. <laughs>